I learned a lot about the colonization of North America in school. If you grew up in the U.S., you probably did as well. There's a tragedy in that story. The displacement and genocide of millions of American Indians. I learned of early enslavement, of encomiendas and the Trail of Tears, as whites gradually pushed natives off more and more of their land. What I didn't learn in school was that during these 300 years of struggle between indigenous Americans and Europeans, there were dozens of victories won by the natives. Serious ones, too. From the Spanish expulsion from Arizona, to the complete rout of the Braddock Exposition, to the brilliance of Tecumseh. The history of American Indians is not just of terror and suffering, but of a people uniting dozens of nations to fight a brutal tide, who often seize victories even when starving and desperate, even when outgunned and outmanned. And we are here today to tell the story of how American Indians delivered perhaps the most thorough defeat in the history of the United States Army. Ladies, gentlemen, and non-binary pals, today we are talking about the Battle of Little Bighorn. This is No One Is Competent, a show that if it does its job right, ensures that you will know that everyone in charge of the world isn't better than you, isn't smarter than you. This is our first military episode, first of many, because the history of human warfare is the history of folly. I am Wyatt, your host today. I am just a not-so-humble storyteller, but I am joined today by my co-host, who brings tireless and thorough research to the podcast, Jay. How you doing? I'm doing all right. Got to bed at uh, 5 a.m., which is rather good for me. Good, good. I, I got to bed before two. That's my current, This that's it's July. Just get to bed before two. Very healthy sleep schedule. Well, you know, I have I have a real job, and also <laughs> I respect God, so that demands that I um that I get up occasionally early in the mornings. Yes. Yeah, they go to bed before the sun rises. Uh, you know, like when you're laying up at night and you've just been trying to sleep for hours and hours and you stumble outside at 3.30 and you hear the birds chirping because the birds have woken up. When the birds start chirping at like 3.30, it's like inconsiderate. I like birds. It's just mean. They're mocking me. (laughs) Yeah, that's like the, the one moment in my life repeated moment where I, I, I just don't want birds to exist. It's like, like, we're up, mother effer. Like, like, we're ready to go. What's your problem? So, this is our second episode. Hopefully y'all listened to our first one on Rudy Giuliani. Got a little bit of a shorter one here, and also one that's going to be kind of depressing. So I figured we'd hang out here in the interim before we jump out and kind of um, talk a little bit, give you some laughs about who we are, what the point of this podcast is. Uh, last time we kept that kind of light because we sort of wanted to leave the content. But um, I'm Wyatt. I also go by Azalea at various parts of the net. Uh, I scream on Twitter, not that anyone follows me. I make YouTube videos. I'm occasionally a novelist, kind of, sort of. It's complicated. And... Um, I am here because I love podcasts, I love storytelling, and I wanted to combine the two, and I found a guy to do, who would actually do it with me um, after uh, about uh, 47 other people uh, kicked me out. Uh, Jay, who, who, who are you? How would you describe... Why are you here? You know, listen to lots of podcasts in my life, figured I might as well try making one, at least making one with someone else. How hard can it be? How hard... Can it 
harder than harder than I expected. <laughs> Wait, this is hard? I mean, we, 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 we just had... We've only had one failed episode, and, like, we've currently invested not that much money. Less than $100. We're... we're I think we're doing pretty well. So, we're going to do a little get-to-know-us thing shtick. We might drop this because it might turn out to be lame, but I thought it would be fun that every episode of the podcast, we would tell you something about ourselves, but we would tell you about the other. So, me and Jay are going to inform you of the things you need to know about the other one. Uh, I'm going to go first, and I'm going to say that one very important thing you need to know about my buddy Jay is that I once saw him compose a top ten list of his favorite leaf shapes. I mean, who doesn't? You have to have opinions. You walk outside, you see a tree, you can't not have an opinion on it. I I didn't say it was bad. (laughs) I didn't say it was good. I just said it existed. It does. Maybe Maybe I'll repost it someday. I suppose that of the many things that one should know about Azalea, the fact that he's a little bit of a debonair, surprisingly, is is up there on the list. Uh, if you've ever seen the picture, he has long hair and spends quite a bit of time maintaining. You know, it's it's a bit impressive, though, when you look at it, you do have to wonder sometimes, what exactly is the point? I mean, standards are what separate men from beasts. Sure, One but... day I will die, and I would like to be pretty when I do so. Fair enough. All right, I guess that's enough uh, beating around the bush, fun, happy times. Let's talk about genocide and warfare and death and killing people. <laughs> Woo! Okay, uh, what what did we say the sub- subject of today's podcast is? Well, the subject of today's podcast is the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Now, for those of you who don't know, this took place on June 25th, 1876, and it was fought between the United States Army and an alliance of Native Americans consisting primarily of the Lakota and Dakota Sioux, Cheyenne, and Arapaho, and it was a part of a larger conflict known as the Great Sioux War. So who, obviously, I I think we all know who the U.S. Army is. Uh, Who are the Sioux? I've heard that word in relation to Native Americans a lot, but like, is, is that a tribe? That's a good question, because we'll be using the term a lot, and uh, it's important to clarify here. The Sioux are not a tribe. Sioux is a larger ethno-linguistic grouping. Within the Sioux, you have the two main divisions, the Lakota and the Dakota, and within those divisions, you have numerous tribes. There'll be multiple tribes involved in the events of today's podcast, um, some of which we won't mention just because there are a lot of them. But yes, Sioux is not a singular tribe. But all of the natives fighting this war will be Sioux. Uh, there, there are some, some who aren't Sioux, but who've joined their alliance. But the, this is a majority Sioux effort. And this Great Sioux War, is this also called the Great Plains War, or is that a different thing? The Great Sioux War is a part of the larger Plains Indian Wars. Um, It's just one subset of it. You know, because these wars were never formally declared by Congress, you know, they don't necessarily always have a clear start and end date, and they often kind of blend together. 
Yeah, so let's talk about what America is doing here. So this is 1876, and this is a little more than 10 years after the Civil War. And the Civil War is arguably the most important event in American history, partially because it destroys the scourge of slavery, but also because... The Civil War makes the United States the United States, by which I mean that it kind of forces the country to become what we would call a modern nation state. The, the fact of the Confederacy and their army and their threat made America form a giant standing army, make factories to make them boots and uniforms and rifles create a bureaucracy in order to keep track of and pay all these people to move and ship things all around the country. The government had to be efficient, had to work, had to function at some point, right? And after the war ends, the uh, government is sitting around this massive army. What do you do with it? Well, the first thing you do with it is you occupy the South because it's still more or less in a state of rebellion uh, that... Uh, need to rejoin the Union at gunpoint, more or less. And then what you do of it, well, you send it west to kill all the people you don't want in your country. And this is a part of something you probably learned about in school. Uh, by the way, I'm saying you probably, because this is kind of tailored for American viewers, or listeners, I guess some of you are viewing this on YouTube, but I imagine most of us, you, uh, but I imagine most of you have this in another tab. Um, if you grew up in America, or maybe probably also in Canada, you probably learned about westward expansion uh, in the 1800s across the American continent. You probably learned a little bit about it if you're listening to this from Europe or Latin America. But essentially know that the U.S., what we now call America, started in the eastern sea seaboard. You know, New York, Virginia, Georgia... And just sort of crept west. And this is part of a big term called manifest destiny, which is this sort of buzzword that describes like a period of American history where God had charged America to sweep out amongst the plains and settle everything and make the land productive productive and make money and stretch from sea to shining sea uh the problem was is that this land uh was not empty and was not pointless uh it was a thriving ecosystem uh full of millions of people uh who wanted to stay there and so you send the army to clear out anyone who you don't want there like i said now, uh, this army, it's very important to note, much smaller than the army that fought the Civil War. Uh, the battles of the Great Plains Wars were fought by no more than a few thousand men on each side. These were wars. We call them wars. They had pitched battles. They took place over, a lo over long periods of time, often years. But these are not the giant Napoleonic meat mills that we see in the Civil War. Um, the, there's a lot of hit and runs. There's a lot of taking hills. We're, we'll talk about that a lot more when we discuss the terrain. The U.S. Army is obviously shrunk a lot in size since the um, 
Civil War, but it's retained most of its officer corps. And almost everyone who's leading these fights against the Indians at this time fought for the Union in the Civil War. Jay, is it, it, it like... Yes. Sure there, there wouldn't that be an officer correct. in charge who wasn't a veteran. Yes, that is correct. And this is a great tragedy in state of American history of, you know, we think of the Union being so heroic and going off and uh, defeating the Confederacy and freeing the slaves. And obviously that's a great and righteous cause, but... A lot of those folks, like Sherman, like Custer, who we're going to talk about, turned right on around and pointed their guns at other brown people. So, whoopee for America. Okay, so we've got the army. They're going into the West. And at this point, Ohio's a state. We've got several. We're pushing West. How West are we talking here? Well... By this point, American settlers have actually made it all the way out to California. Of course, there was the gold rush in 1849. But in doing so, they had kind of bypassed the Great Plains. The Great Plains hadn't really been settled in large amounts because of the terrain and because you didn't have a, a strong incentive to do so beforehand. So we're talking yeah. really about the area west of the Missouri River right now. Yeah, so west of the Missouri River, we're talking about the Dakotas, we're talking about Nebraska, eventually, um, there, I don't think there was a lot of fighting in Montana, but that would also be this area, Colorado, Oklahoma, and um, the Indian Wars would eventually stretch down even to Utah, but the U.S. Army is pushing into this central northwestern part of the continent, and Jay, tell me, so, so this is where Jay is about to launch into an incredible explanation of what the U.S. Army is working with in the 1870s. So the latter half of the 19th century can be seen as a little bit of, can be seen as the last heyday of cavalry in warfare. This is really the end of a long period in human history in which the horse played a central role in combat. And the wide expanses of the West and the irregular nature of the Indian Wars, these are what we'd call today asymmetric conflict. They are characterized by skirmishes, uh, hit-and-run attacks, like you mentioned earlier. And yeah, and asymmetric means that the U.S. Army is obviously a much more powerful force yes. um, than the other force we're fighting, who we'll get to in a bit. Yes. And in order to really deal with this, the Indians would not, you know, stand and defend their territory for prolonged periods of time, because that would be suicidal. Instead, they would move. In order to keep up with that, you had to have horses, um, meaning that the mobility provided by horses was vital to both the United States Army and the Native Americans. And this, the area of the United States we're talking about right now, uh, this is wilderness. I mean, a lot of it still is wilderness, but th there are no railroads that have reached that part of the country yet. I believe the first Continental Railroad cut through, like, Texas and uh, the, the, the southern part of the continent, yes, right? Yes, yeah. Actually, a lot of the skirmishes and battles fought will be fought as natives are attacking surveyors who are planning railroads through these areas. Yeah, so if the army wants to go in... They're all on horseback. That's the way yeah. you travel through this terrain. And maybe this is a good time to get into the terrain 
of where exactly we are with this. So I said before, uh, this is going to take place in uh, the Dakotas, North and South. And this is going to be fighting over an area called the Black Hills. Now, uh, in my opinion, there's no reason to go to North Dakota. Jay, have you ever been to North Dakota? I have not. It is a rectangle made out of mustard seed and oil fields, okay? It is a, a square of resources. Uh, but South Dakota is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been in my entire life. Uh, you've got the Badlands, which, despite its name, is obscenely gorgeous. You have the Black Hills. If, if you grew up in um, the eastern seaboard of the United States or in Europe, or a smaller country, like, it is really hard to even grasp how large the West is, how big the sky is. So you, you just crane your head around the Great Plains and just see this ocean that extends for infinity. Um, you have massive prairies on which bison graze, you have imposing thick forests around um we, we're not reached the we haven't reached the rocky mountains yet but still very hilly very mountainous terrain very easy to get yourself hurt the winters here are brutal um this is a, a beautiful place but it's not a premium place to fight a war it's obviously not the first place that europeans want to settle in the american continent because uh, it's hard living there. It's For sure. Arguably still is. Uh, Shoutouts to our boy uh, Buggy protesting uh, the lack of uh, marijuana legalization. <laughs> so, the Black Hills. This is where we're fighting. This is where most of the warfare is going to go on. This is thick, at this point, totally untamed wilderness. You have thick forests where an army can attack and fade into. You have hills that you can make camp on and maybe try and defend. Uh, then you also have giant gulches and prairies where you can see for miles down to try and spot an opponent. Maybe you want to keep your army kind of out of the out of the sight lines of those. And so th this is the kind of place that we're running our horses around yes now again the black hills whites weren't in this area why do whites go to the black hills jay well there are a few reasons but the big one would be the prospect of gold uh gold is discovered there by u.s army get expedition. the shiny get the shiny we're gonna get the shiny we're gonna put our picks in the ground and we're gonna rip the shiny out of the ground we're gonna rip it out of the ground, we're gonna dig, we're gonna shit, we're gonna rip, we're gonna rip, we're gonna hack, we're gonna break, we're gonna stone belt. I'm okay, I, I don't, I'm done. Thank you. And of course, later on, the various other metals and other resources will be discovered in these areas, but gold is the, the big one. I mean, it's gold, it has an attraction to people. You know, you hear about it, you want it. And, and this is 1870s, the California gold rush, and uh, the dream of that is still alive in many an American. Yes. But while white Americans were primarily going to this area to look for gold, they did face the unfortunate reality for them that there were already people living here 
these people of course being the Plains Indians. Now, a lot of people know about Native Americans, about Indians. Um, as a side note, I'll be using the term interchangeably throughout this podcast. I know there are some people who have hang-ups about the term Indians. Uh, from my research, it seems like people, members of these tribes, generally are fine with the term. This is a term used in historical documents, and the U.S. government to this day maintains the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Um, so that's just a brief aside. But a lot of people don't really know exactly what their lifestyle is. Now, the Plains Indians first started adopting the horse, which was originally introduced by the Spanish, in mass around the late 1600s. And the open expanses of this terrain, as mentioned beforehand, and the large buffalo herds meant that the Plains were very well suited to a nomadic lifestyle made possible by, by the horse. The groups that we'll be talking about today, mainly like the Sioux and Cheyenne, as well as other um, groups such as the Comanche and Kiowa, grew in strength uh, relative to other Native American tribes over this period, overtaking the more sedentary northern tribes. This was also helped by the fact that the northern tribes tended to be more agrarian and their larger settlements were hit very hard by the European diseases. All Native Americans suffered greatly from the diseases, but it really hit those settled societies. However, these tribes also came into increasingly fierce competition with each other as they were pushed further and further west by white settlers. You'll hear about multiple conflicts if you do any research about this, which will be like the Lakota are pushed into Crow territory and then the Crow get down pushed into the Kiowa and so on and so forth. This kind of reminds me of what was happening in the back half of the Western Roman Empire. Yes, it's a very good comparison. The, when the Romans run, you know, first they fight uh, the Goths and that works out fine and they fight another version of the Goths. And uh, then they're like, all right, all right. And then the Vandals come and the Vandals like really mess them up. And they're yes. like, all right, fine, but we're still fine. And the reason the Goths and the Vandals came is that they were being chased by the Huns. Yes. And by the time the Huns got there, the Western Roman Empire was not, not in good state. shape. <laughs> yeah. That is a good comparison. It is a, it is a similar situation with the, uh, the European-Americans being the Huns. Sure. Now, the result of all of this is that by the 1860s, the Great Plains were the last stronghold of significant Native American power and resistance on the continental United States. Those further west on the Pacific had already been reduced in number by first by the Spanish and then by the Americans following the gold rush. Um, and most of the tribes in the U.S. had already either been eradicated or forced to live on reservations, which was a fate that the Plains Indians largely sought to avoid. But unfortunately for them, they were coming under increasingly harsh pressure as the U.S. government encouraged settlement of the Plains, facil facilitated by the nascent railroad network, and eradication of the buffalo herds. You know, one of the yeah, American tactics. One of the... Yeah, like... In what was it? Uh, all right, trivia time. Eighteen sixty-two, the Homestead Act. Uh, I believe so. under Lincoln, we would just 
give people like if you move out to the west we will give you like just a hundred acres of yes. land that that is just yours now no no taxes no just go there find it and, and it belongs to you yes and one of the other u.s policies is to encourage buffalo hunting uh, even in excess just kill as many buffalo as you can because this would deprive the Indians of their food source and would also make it easier for the railroads because they wouldn't have to worry about trains hitting Buffalo. Yeah, so we, we just looked up whether or not the American bison <laughs> was uh, endangered because I'm very concerned because Buffalo are like definitely in the top 2% of coolest things on this planet. Oh yeah, they're definitely, they're up there. Well above They're just meat tanks Yes. And they're all, but they're also simultaneously kind of adorable, but also noble. Good job, God. No notes. 10 out of 10. Now, all of what I've mentioned, it forms the background for the conflict known as the Great Sioux War. The immediate background for that, however, is a previous war fought from 1866 to 68 known as Red Cloud's War, named after the Lakota chieftain Red Cloud. Now, the Red Cloud War is one of the other um, high watermarks, you could say, for Native American history, as the Natives led a very effective and persistent resistance, which ended up in a treaty that at the time was interpreted as a little bit of a Native American victory, this being the Treaty of Fort Laramie. Uh, the Treaty of Fort Laramie did establish the Great Sioux Reservation in South Dakota, uh, meaning that Sioux in there would technically be on a reservation. However, they would have full legal ownership of the Black Hills. It also set aside further land in North Dakota, Nebraska, Montana, and Wyoming as unceded Indian territory in which white settlers could not move into without the consent of the tribes. Of course, all of this, uh, this treaty was signed in 1868, which is before the gold was discovered, um, as aforementioned, in 1874. And once that gold was found, the U.S. did what it did best and pretended to ignore the treaty it signed just years prior. Yeah, and I want to loop back around. We were talking about this is when America is becoming yes. a nation yes. state. and. A nation state essentially means that you can, as the government, enforce your will upon the land that you claim. And, like, on maps, on, like, paper right now, America owns all the way to California. Yes. But th that is fiction. That is lies. That is words on paper. That's lines on paper. They do not have the ability to do whatever they want uh, in the Dakotas, in Nebraska, partially because it's really hard to reach and partially because there's people there who will shoot you. And a, one of the reasons that nation states are so violent and after this, the next 100 years of American and um, European societies are going to be kind of a testament to that is that in order to be a nation state, in order to have the ability to enforce your will upon the land you claim is yours, 
you got to do that enforcement with guns. Yeah. Now, what was known as the Black Hills Expedition is the expedition we've mentioned a few times before. This was, occurred in 1874 and was mounted by the U.S. Army into the Black Hills in modern-day South Dakota and North Dakota. This expedition, led by a certain George Armstrong Custer, who we will most certainly be talking about later on in this podcast, was able to find a decent amount of gold in the mountains. There's actually some controversy over just how much. It seems that the amount was slightly exaggerated. But they found gold, and what's important is the fact that they found gold made it very quickly out to the press. And yeah, this no, ma- all right. No one who has ever reported about the discovery of gold has accurately reported the <laughs> amount of gold. It, it's physically impossible. No one can, you cannot competently report the amount of gold. This is impossible. <laughs> so I, I don't blame them. Yes. No one's ever done it. And once that becomes national news, as you can imagine, you know, all, all bets are off or all. All sort, all the provisions of the treaty that made it so that this was technically Sioux land, that they had full ownership, were pretty much immediately disregarded or ignored by the prospectors rushing into the area, and shortly afterwards, the U.S. government seeking to protect them. The result of this was increasing tensions between the Native Americans, between the Sioux in this territory and the white prospectors rushing in, and of course, as you can imagine, this would draw on the involvement of the United States Army. Now, I feel like a lot of people have a vague idea about what warfare in the 19th century might have been like, but the fact is it changed a lot from the beginning to the end. So not to get into too much detail, but I think it's worth going over what we're really talking about when we're talking about the U.S. Army here, what sort of weapons they're working with. Now, the standard rifle used by U.S. soldiers at the time was the Springfield Model 1873, more commonly known as the Trapdoor Springfield. This is what we call a breech-loading rifle. That's where the term trapdoor comes from. In order to load this rifle, there is a a lever, essentially, or a a flap that opens on the back, the trapdoor, and you just put a single metallic cartridge in, close it, and then cock the hammer. And you're, you're not doing that by putting the shot down the barrel, no. which is very different from rifles that were being used yes. just 10 years ago. Yeah, like the, the two real big innovations is that you're not jamming something down the muzzle. It's in the breech, so the back of the gun. And it's a metallic cartridge. You know, this is what we use today, meaning that the bullet, the powder, the primer is all contained in one unit. You're not pouring gunpowder down and ramming it down and then putting a musket ball and ramming it down. It's all just one thing. It means you can shoot way faster, way less to carry, way less risk. Yeah. And the standard sidearm used was the famous gun known as the Colt Single Action Army. If you've ever seen any Western movie, any cowboy movie, you've probably seen this, even if you don't know it. Um, this was a standard cowboy gun. It's a six-shot, single-action revolver, firing 45 Colt. Um, the single shot means that you simply have to cock the hammer manually after firing it every single time. But it's also using metallic cartridges, meaning that it's a huge step up from the black powder, uh, you know, manually loaded pistols of decades prior. Yeah, if you, you think about 
like a cowboy movie. The guy's holding the gun with one hand in his right, and he's got his left hand over the gun. Yes. And that's so he shoots, he cocks it back, he shoots, he cocks it back, and if you're good, you exactly. can do that pretty fast. Exactly. And cavalry sabers were still issued and used, though by this point they were definitely a, a tertiary weapon. And one uh, interesting point about cavalry sabers is that these weapons uh, were, were really, really dangerous to use yes. because <laughs> you're on the momentum of your horse. So uh, if you, you you don't stab with these things because if you're riding by and you stab a dude, the blade goes into the dude. The blade is attached to your arm, which is attached to you, and <laughs> you is traveling on a horse on anywhere between 10 and 20 miles per hour, and that's going to yank you right out, and then you are in big, bad, not good. So you're making hacking, swinging motions. Uh, you actually, I think, I've heard about intentionally dulling the blade so it doesn't really go in that far. Um yeah, it's, it's, these... you're kind of using it really more as a club than anything else. You're not trying to get big, clean cuts. Yeah, these are very much slashing weapons primarily at the time. It's, it's kind of interesting if you look at the evolution of swords that uh, th this big slashing saber, the scimitar thing, is something that European and Western-style blades really got away from for yeah. hundreds of years of the evolution. You know, you kind of end with the rapier. But then now, the, in their sort of last hurrah, we've sort of gone back. I don't know, that just I, I get nerdy about that kind of thing. Oh, it's cool. The evolution of, of weapons in general is a, is a subject I'm sure we could talk about all on its own for hours, but definitely a interesting topic now we need failure we need fa we need we need to talk about all the people who made mistakes who made mistakes who's who's leading these boys running into the black hills yes that of course would be lieutenant colonel george armstrong custer now custer was born in ohio as so many notorious americans are in 1839 and graduated bottom of his class in west point in 1861 due to a repeated streak of misbehavior I mean, he graduated. I didn't graduate, so I guess I gotta give him that. Fair. Now, if this had really happened in any other year, this probably would have meant that Custer would have been assigned some rather meaningless posting, uh, maybe being in charge of a supply dip depot or something. Uh, certainly something far away from the action. But as you know, something really was kind of going on in 1861 in America. It's a rather important year. And that, of course, the thing going on was the United States Civil War. The Civil War had broken out and there was an immediate need for officers, anybody, even people who are bottom of the class at West Point, they were still an officer and that mattered. Throw meat at wall. <laughs> now the Civil War would prove to be a great opportunity for Custer. He quickly made a name for himself in the cavalry as a bold and daring commander. Quick, quick note about cavalrymen. Uh, cavalrymen are the trumpeteers of the army, all right? Arrogant <laughs> assholes think they're better than everyone up on their horses. Wild, crazy, stupid, but hopefully in a useful way. We'll get to that in a bit. 
And uh, I, I think Custer is like he. What's cool about him, if there's anything cool about him, is that he he's almost like a Jungian archetypal representation of the cavalryman, right? Very much so. He's almost like a almost like a Don Quixote like figure, and just how much he embodies that idea. Now, as mentioned, uh, Custer won several promotions through his bravery and talent for quick action. And he was known for leading his men from the front and having his horse shot out from him multiple times. If you ever read about cavalry in a, really any, any part of um, early modern history, people often talk about this or that commander having their horse shot out from the, under them. And that's kind of a sign of bravery. Because that means, you know, you were this close to being shot yourself. He would uh, play an important role in several actions during the Civil War. Uh, and is most famous for defeating Jeb Stuart's uh, Confederate cavalry at Gettysburg via a highly costly charge. His unit loses, takes hundreds of casualties, but they come out on top, and that would prevent Jeb Stuart from attacking the southern flank of the Union army. Yeah, I, the picture's kind of starting to come together for me on this guy. Like, he's bad in class, he, you know, he's, he's a fidgeter, he, he doesn't want to study, he doesn't want to sit still, but he's brave, he's wild, he's crazy, and he's the guy you need to lead dozens of men to their deaths while gunshots are going off all around his head and he's moving 20 miles an hour on a horse. Yes, he will do that. Now, he was even present for the end of the war at Appomattox. He, he was the one who received the flag of truce, of truce from General Lee and was present at the courthouse for the Confederate surrender. Um, if you've ever seen one of the paintings uh, of the surrender, you might see a Union officer with a bright red cravat. That's Custer. Cracker was wearing a bright red cravat. He he had really pretty hair too, right? Yes, he was very mindful of his image. His signature look was his long blonde hair, and this is remarked upon by people at the time because um, he he kept it long. He didn't cut it, and he would always have well kept uniforms in the latest fashion. Yeah, so pretty boy, but also gets his hands dirty. And this is a guy who wants glory. He wants yeah. money, he wants fame, and he wants to kill people. He yeah. is going in. Say what you will about Custer, he is not a coward. No. And he was good at getting his fame. He wrote several articles for magazines, even publishing a compilation of them in 1874, and would often invite journalists to accompany him on campaign. The result of this is that he was a bit of a minor celebrity, seen as both a rugged frontiersman and a dashing ca cavalier in the European style. Um, he was somebody who people knew about at the time. Now, Custer was routinely reprimanded for disobeying orders and even court-martialed for going on AWOL, absent without official leave, to visit his wife. But these punishments never stuck due to his personal We love a wife guy. Definitely a wife guy. But the punishments never stuck due to his popularity and his close relationship with General Philip Sheridan, who, if you don't know, was very important. Uh, one of the highest ranking generals in U.S. history. So, as mentioned, Custer is colorful, charismatic, impetuous, and very self-assured. He knew he was right, 
and he didn't have an issue letting other people knew that he was right. Now, his involvement in, with the Indian Wars began in 1866, when he was a point lieutenant, lieutenant colonel of the 7th Cavalry Regiment. Yeah, this, this guy is not going to rotate to civilian life. He, he doesn't know how to do anything else. No, he, you know, there's a brief period after the end of the war where he's mustered out of the army, as many, many officers were, because it shrunk dramatically in size. No money. We have no more money. <laughs> yeah. But he very quickly gets back in. And in 1866, he would actually defeat the Sioux, uh, including Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse, in a very minor battle during the Yellowstone Expedition. And of course, he would then go on to lead the 1874 Black Expedition, which we mentioned earlier. Now, Custer, he's going in in 1876. What, what unit is he a part of? He's in charge of the 7th Cavalry Regiment. Now, this was a unit that had been formed after the Civil War, but primarily of Civil War veterans. At least officers were pretty much all Civil War veterans. So, Custer's coming in with the, with the 7th Cavalry Regiment, and now let us talk about our protagonists of this story. So we said before, this is a war mostly fought by Sioux Indians. Uh, what, what, and these are, there's like the Lakota, there's the, uh, yeah, Jay, help me out here. Lakota and the Dakota would be the two main subdivisions. And then underneath those subdivisions, you have a variety of different tribes, all with their tribal leaders. Now, some of the most famous, one of the most famous tribal leaders, somebody who even people who don't know much about this battle might have heard of, was the Oglala Sioux leader, Crazy Horse. Now, Crazy Horse, in many ways, is a little bit of a mirror of Custer. Where Custer is outgoing and full bravado, Crazy Horse was actually very introverted and quiet, despite of his name. However, he was certainly brave and experienced. He fought in the Red Clown's War, and in one action during that conflict, he even personally served as a decoy to lure U.S. forces into an ambush. So he's a successful and brave commander, and he commands a lot of respect amongst his men. What, one, thing I, one thing that I want to add about Crazy Horse is that this guy fought. We're, we're going to get into the logistics of this war, but during this battle, he is more or less emaciated the entire time. Yes. This guy was like... I'm pretty sure less than 150, 140 pounds. He's uh, rail thin on his horse because they don't have a lot of food. He's, you know, they're roughing it as rough as you can possibly get it in the mountains, riding horseback every day. This is a hard man. Very much so. Now, alongside Crazy Horse, you had Sitting Bull, who was a leader of the Hunkpapa tribe. Like Crazy Horse, he was a veteran of the Red Clown's War. And he's notable in the background for this battle um, because of a famous event in 1875 during the Sundance, where he receives a vision that was interpreted by him and by his people as a sign of an upcoming Native victory over the Americans. Now, Sitting Bull at this point has less of a direct military role but he's very vital in tying together the alliance of Indian tribes that would take part in this battle. 
Yeah, you can think of Sitting Bull as more of like a fatherly statesman politician figure who's making deals and make again, remember the Indians are not a monolith. These are dozens of different peoples who speak different languages. They have beef with each other going back hundreds of years. And you need a calm and steady hand to remind everybody who the real enemy is. Yes. And whereas Crazy Horse is leading troops at the front, really a big military mind. Very much so. And there are numerous other leaders who you could spend, I mean could spend a long amount of time mentioning them all uh, because they don't really have a written down military structure it's sometimes hard to really define rules for all of them but um the other one i'll mention here is chief gall another hunk papa leader like sitting bull but while sitting bull was more of a political or spiritual figure gall was very much a battle commander and he was a very cunning one and was known for his ability to predict the movements of his enemies in advance Something which we'll see a little bit of during this panel. How many um how many men does Custer have under his command in the Seventh Cavalry Regiment? The Seventh Cavalry at this point consists of about seven hundred men. So that that's about what we'll see in this panel, between six hundred and seven hundred. Some of them will be left behind or sent off as messengers, but yes. And they are more or less on an expedition cut off from their supply lines. Like, they, they've got everything they're going to need with yes, them. Yes, they have their own pack mules with their own baggage train. So they are a self-sufficient force. And what are the natives working with? So the native forces are really in the lines of the Lakota, Dakota, as well as Cheyenne and Arapaho, who had also arrived to help them. And their encampment was numbered around 7,000. Now, this was the natives in general, men, women, and children. Of these 7,000, approximately 2,300 were men and boys of fighting age, the people who would take part in the battle. And this doesn't really seem large. You know, if, you, if, you, if you're familiar with the Civil War, for example, 7,000 is nothing in the context of the Civil War. But for these Rounding wars, error. Yeah. For these wars, it was huge. This is one of the largest gatherings of Indians seen on the plains for the entire Indian Wars. And, and the entire Indian Wars is a period of history including 300 years. Yes. Now, these, now these Indians would fight both mounted and dismounted, similar to the Americans. Um, uh, as a brief note of clarification, we talk a lot about cavalry, they're not always fighting on horseback. They were also trained to get off their horses and form skirmish lines to fire, to advance on foot, and use their horses for mobility, as well as they could also use their horses, you know, to charge as well. Question that I have, uh, I imagine that horses raised, this might not be a huge factor, but horses raised by the natives might be a lot more skittish around gunfire than those that the Americans have. Uh, horses... They're very sensitive. They do not like big, loud noises. And I can definitely see if you were going to set up, say, a um, rifle line, getting off of your horses might be a good idea because uh, they're probably going to be moving around a lot when you're trying to get your shot. Sure. And, I mean, and this is something, this is a tactic that both sides will use um, just because horses are skittish and they're big targets. And if you actually get pinned down, you know, you're stationary for a prolonged period of time, you really don't want to be on your horse. 
And if your horse gets shot and falls down and pins at least one of your legs under it, you're you're dead. You're you're you are done for the battle. That yes. that's it. Yeah. Now the Native Americans, their way of warfare is actually very cautious. They're often pre- um, they're often portrayed in Hollywood as you know, almost suicidally brave. And while they were very brave, they weren't suicidal. They were only two, there's a little more than 2,000 of them. Like, no one's throwing their life away. Like, you have to live to fight another day because there's not a lot of people to live and fight another day. Exactly, exactly. Due to their limited numbers, they would really attack when provoked or when they thought they had a reasonable chance of victory or an ability to get away. And in terms of weapons, they're fighting using a mix of weapons. We don't really have exact numbers. Um, One U.S. soldier uh, estimated that about half of them had bows. A quarter had the older style of muzzle loaders or some single-shot rifle similar to what the uh, U.S. soldiers had. However, he also said that about a quarter of them had repeating rifles. This is something which actually goes against what a lot of a lot about what we know and how we see the Indian Wars. We see the U.S. as the more advanced side. But one of the weird things going on with guns in this period is that civilian gun manufacturers are making very rapid advances, and they're coming out with lever-action repeating rifles, such as the Winchester and the Henry. Um, Again, if you've seen cowboy movies, you've probably seen these. Because these are famous. And these, these are the rifles that will reload by cocking the whole um, trigger mechanism forward, yeah, you, right? Yeah, you have a weaver that's mounted just under the trigger, and once you fire a shot, you move the weaver forward, move it back, and it's reloaded. And you have a tube magazine, which will have anywhere to like seven to ten rounds. And this really allows you to begin getting somewhere close to a semi-automatic weapon. Yes. And some of the natives have these. Uh, This will be exaggerated sometimes down the line. People will say the natives win because they have repeating rifles. It's probably not really the case because most of them didn't have them. But at least some of them did, which they would have probably acquired through civilian sources. You know, people just selling and trading guns. Okay, so the Great Sioux War starts, and this is probably where we should talk about the difference between civilian and combatants. So we said that we have about 7,000 Indians and um, around 30% of those are what we might, we'll call soldiers for the the purpose of this on a practical matter. That still leaves a massive population of civilians, a population that the American side didn't have to deal with. And these populations uh, are living on what were called at the time Indian agencies. Yes. And these are, these are not, are these towns? These are settlements, like dedicated. These are, yes, these are settlements on reservations. And a lot of them will. I mean, a lot of these people would have been living in the agencies and then would have left the agencies um, prior to the battle to come up, you know, for the battle. And there's a lot of, because even the reservations, the U.S. has a hard time fully policing because they're so big that people can kind of go in and out uh, just by slipping through. So 
a and a big factor in this war is going to be the United States using the civilian Indian population against it. Correct. Um, Custer was famous for taking Indian hostages, men, women, uh, women, children, elderly. I say famous for this because he he actually factually just published a book called My Life on the Plains <laughs> uh, two years before the Battle of Little Bighorn, where, where he just said, "Ah, oh, yeah, a great thing to do is you've got to locate uh, the camp." take the women and children and then uh they won't fight you as much yeah that was a very effective and sort of a trademark tactic of the of u.s cavalry at the time was to take hostages to force the indians to surrender because like again these are not big like shall we say um Carl von clausewitz-esque engagements like these are hits and runs so if 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 your enemy who's hiding out in the Black Hills has enough food. Uh, even if their forces are slowly getting whittled down, th- they could run this out for years, just hitting and hitting and hitting and hitting, and everybody gets sort of chipped off a little bit uh, here and there. Um, Certainly. Eventually, going for the civilian populations is how things are going to end, but we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. So um, the Battle of Little Bighorn is by far the, the biggest engagement in, of the war, right? Correct. Does it, does it happen, like, early on, or, like, like kind of yes, at the beginning? This, this is the first really big engagement of the war. There's also the Battle of the Rosebud, which takes place about a week prior. But Little Bighorn is, is, is the biggest battle, and it's very early on in the war. Now, before I talk about it, I think it's worth just going over the, the actual terrain of the battlefield so people can have an image of it. I'm sure we'll also put an image of it for, on the YouTube video, but um, if you're listening to this and not watching, you, you might want to form just a mental image. So what we're talking about is the Little Bighorn is a river. You know, the river will give its name to this battle. And it's a very winding river that um, is moving from north to south. And the Indians have an encampment that's on the uh, on the west side of the river, right by the riverbanks. Now, to the east of the river, you have a wooded area, which I'll probably be calling the timber, because that's what's generally just referred to in sources. And beyond the timber, you have uh, grass-covered hills and ridges that rise up. So that's sort of a highland area. And that's where this is where the fighting will, a lot of it will take place. Now, the U.S. Army had an idea that the Indians were somewhere in the area of the, of the Bighorn River. Um, and they had, this was actually a part of Montana. This was on the Crow Reservation. The Crow did not take part in the battle and didn't give their approval to the suit. Um, the Crow were actually aligned with the United States at the time and were historical enemies of the Lakota. And Custer has uh, native scouts yes. working for him. Are these, are these Crow? I think a few are Crow or Arikara. And the Arikara are another um, tribe who are enemies, historically enemies of the Lakota. The, uh, the Lakota had mounted several raids into Arikara territory as the Arikara kind of 
their power. They were one of the more sedentary agrarian-based societies, and their power really started to wane after they were hit really hard by the diseases. But yeah, Custer does have multiple Native American scouts with him. Uh, but yes, the Americans knew that the Indians were somewhere in this territory, but they didn't know exactly where their encampment was or how big it was. The basic plan was a three-pronged attack on the Bighorn River area. You would have a column coming in from the west led by General Gibbon, a column from the south by General Crook, and one from the east led by General Terry. These were mixtures of infantry and cavalry. And because of that, they were moving relatively slowly because you had infantry, people who are literally marching on foot. Now, you said generals. So, so they're in charge of Custer? Yes. Custer is a subordinate, specifically of Terry. Yeah, so, so is Terry like the, the biggest general leading the 7th Cavalry Division? or uh, Terry's in charge of uh, infantry and cavalry, yes. He in particular is from the infantry side. But Crook's advance from the south is delayed by the Battle of the Rosebud. This was a smaller battle in which the natives basically managed to just hold him up and slow down his advance. And because the cavalry in general is a lot faster than the infantry, the, the generals make the decision to send the 7th Cavalry under Lieutenant Colonel Custer in advance to reconnaissance and try to find an Indian encampment because he can just move a lot faster without the infantry, you know, having to But they do along. not tell him to engage the enemy. No, they don't. His, his, his not orders... Not that that's going to stop him. No, his orders are to reconnaissance and to find them. And if he does, to wait for, re you know, send message and wait for reinforcements. Now, he would have had the prerogative to stray somewhat from these orders and take the initiative if need be. That is a thing in the army. Um, and it's a thing that really, you know, there, there are a lot of battles won for people taking the initiative and doing stuff that they weren't strictly ordered to do. But it can also go very wrong. So around the night of June 24th, Custer's men were had launched this reconnaissance and they were resting east of the battle site, what would before become the battle site, after a long days of riding. Now, as Custer's men are making camp, his Indian scouts spot smoke rising from the Little Bighorn Valley and pony herds grazing on the land nearby. This, of course, being an indication that the Indians have to be near. Now, they send this message back to Custer, who doesn't immediately take action, but does consider it. Custer also discovers that their baggage trains had dropped a box of hardtack. It's not a really big deal, except for the fact that if anybody, if any of the natives found this hardtack, they would know that the U.S. Army was in the area. As a result of this, instead of waiting, on the morning of the 25th, Custer decided to move out to immediately approach the Indian encampment. So he knows that they know he's there. He knows he doesn't have reinforcements. Like, how far away these are, are these three uh, branches of this army from each other? Like, as far as, like, day's ride? So the closest, um, I don't know the exact miles, but the... 
The rest of the column would have been about a day and a half away. So if you wanted to wait for reinforcements, you'd probably end up having to wait probably around two days for reinforcements to arrive, which is certainly feasible. Um, he could have made a, just a defensive position um, and waited for further reinforcements. But but that's not what our boy's going to do. No, it's not. <laughs> now, he was worried that if the Indians figured out where he was, not that they would attack him, but that they would run away. And as you mentioned earlier, one of Custer's trademark tactics is to take hostages. If all the women and children get away, there are no hostages to take. This guy is a hero of Gettysburg. This guy takes action. He he doesn't want to, like, him being defeated is, is not even in his mind. Like, the risk here is not him overextending without backup. The risk here is them getting away from glorious Lieutenant Colonel Custer. Of course. You know, this is a guy who, back in the Civil War, demanded that the Confederate General Longstreet surrender his army personally and unconditionally to him despite the fact that Lee and Grant were doing their own negotiations at the same time, miles away. <laughs> this is somebody who has a very high opinion of himself and is assured of his correctness. So on the morning of the 25th, the 7th Cavalry begins to move out. And this is also when he starts to divide the 7th Cavalry into four groups. One group is the baggage train with about one company, around 100 men. So they are going to, because it's the baggage train is pull, pulled by mules instead of horses, they are slower. And they'll sort of just been following up in the rear. The rest of the forces he divides in three. One under Captain Frederick Benteen is tasked with going south of the Little Bighorn Valley and scouting the area, to, basically to try to find exactly where the Indians are, because they still don't know the exact location of the encampment. The other group under Captain Marcus Reno is for the moment to continue on with General Custer east towards, or sorry, westwards towards the Little Bighorn. And Custer is in charge of the remaining five companies. Sorry, Reno has three and Benteen has three, and Custer has five. Now this will be about 210 men in total. And Custer and Reno move west to the Little Bighorn. Benteen um, moving south into the highlands, is unable to sight any Indians because as he goes up onto one of the ridges, he realizes that there's another ridge in front of him blocking his view. So then he has to go to that ridge, and then there's another one in front of that blocking his view. And th this is going to draw him away. Yes, and he has to keep on advancing. And at, he, in the end, he really just isn't able to sight the encampment in time. And he's kind of... Right now, he's off doing his own thing. You know, this battle is kind of confusing because you have these three different groups doing their own thing for a lot of it. But just know now that Benteen is kind of doing his own thing. Now, around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, as Custer and Reno have been moving um, westwards, Custer is taking up a position on the east of the Bighorn Little Bighorn River, while Reno's on the west of it. And this is when Reno discovers the Indian encampment. He sees all their teepees. He sees, all, you know, all the civilians, all the warriors. And the Indians don't seem immediately prepared for an attack. You know, one thing worth noting is that the Indians aren't here to make a battle on this location. 
This was not a battlefield they picked. They're here to kind of meet and gather their forces and decide what to do next. So what Reno does is that he has his men dismount and form a skirmish line to fire into the village. And Custer, on the other side of the river in the highlands, sees this happening. Now, Custer had told Reno that Reno would have the full support of Custer's command. But he, at this moment, Custer seems to think that Reno has it under control. And as a result, he doesn't go to assist Reno when Reno's really starting the battle. He stays on the other side of the river. And he thinks that what he has to do is to then go north and cut off the Indians, particularly the women and children, from escaping. Because there's no way that Reno could could screw this up. Yeah, he's got three companies. That's, that's, that should be fine. <laughs> you know, and, and most of the battles prior to this in, in these Indian wars, we're talking about maybe a couple hundred per side. Sometimes even just dozens of men. So having, you know, Reno with around 200-ish men should be more than enough. So Custer at this moment is, like I said, he's in the sort of Highlands area and he's not assisting Reno. Instead, he's continuing to move north to try to outflank the Indian encampment and prevent people from retreating. As he's doing this, Reno's forces are almost immediately counterattacked by a large amount of Indian warriors, much larger than he was prepared for. He's basically just charged as these warriors are, you know, getting ready for the battle and coming out to meet the skirmish line. Yeah, and this is where he's forming a skirmish line. They're trying to get set up in the woods. And then Bloody Knife, an Indian scout that was working for Reno, he's shot in the head right next to him. Some reports say that there's literally blood and blains all over Reno, his uniform, his face. And Reno freaks out. He loses control. He's issuing contrary orders. And this is where the Indians, they're coming. They're charging. Yes. And we have just chaos amongst the ranks. Yeah, Reno's telling people to, they're originally dismounted for the skirmish line. He's telling them to mount and then dismount and then mount. He basically loses control of the scenario. They're, as you mentioned, they're forced into the timber, um, the sort of wooded areas. Uh, and it, it kind of begins to fall apart. And it almost becomes, Reno eventually decides to retreat across the river. But most of his men don't hear the order. And a lot of, sort of becomes every man for himself kind of deal as people are trying to rush across the river and get to the highlands on the eastern side of it for safety. So how long does it take Custer to realize something's gone wrong? We don't know exactly, um, but Custer doesn't take immediate action to relieve Reno. In fact, Custer's forces will never go to relieve Reno. Reno's forces. Um, he seems to have, at this point, been far, far enough that he either didn't realize what was going on, or they would have still have heard the gunfire, of course. But he probably still assumed that Reno had it under control. Yeah, that, that's a good that's a good sound. Yeah. He he probably still assumed that Reno had things under control. When in reality what had happened is what was left of Reno's um, battalion had formed basically a last-ditch defense on a hill, what would later be called Reno's Hill, naturally. And were really fighting for their lives. 
So as this is sort of had been going on, Custer has sent a messenger to Benteen, telling Captain Benteen to be quick, come and come and join Custer, and to bring the uh, baggage train. Now this is seems sensible and innocuous, but really this is an example of one of the most common failings that a commander can have, which is to to order a contradictory order. Um, as we talked about earlier, Benteen is scouting. Benteen is not with the baggage trains. So he can either come quick to the battle, or he can go get the baggage and bring the baggage to the battle. He can't really do both. You can't come quick with the baggage. And he has to stop and try and make his decision while Reno's men are getting ripped apart. Yes. In the end, Benteen decides to not wait for the baggage and to come to the battle, but he can't come in time. Well, he he does come in time. He does eventually meet up with Reno's forces and they relieve. He basically takes charge because at this point, Reno has more or less is not effective as a commander. So Benteen takes charge of Reno's forces on the hill. He, he, Reno is hysterical. Uh, yeah, Reno's going. He's trying. Understandably, he's so. trying to go off and search for the body of one of the men who was close to him. He's not an effective commander at this point. We we have reached carnage. So Benteen kind of takes charge of the situation. He's on a hill, sort of east of the encampment, but he doesn't advance further. He decides to get the men all calmed down and form a defensive line, and sit. This is something he'll be criticized for after the fact. Um, Reno and Benteen will bear a lot of blame for the defeat. As Custer was a very popular figure, these two end up getting kind of scapegoated. But there is a logic to Benteen's caution. Yeah. Stop the bleeding. Stabilize. Custer's out there. They've got more men. If we wait, surely everything's going to be fine. What's Custer doing? Yeah, and that's a good point. At this point, nobody they're still not thinking that they're going to lose. There's still, you know, there's a, what happened was bad. It was a setback with Reno. But that doesn't mean that there, you know, this is going to be a defeat. Now, while this is going on, like I said, you have multiple things going on at the same time. But while this was happening, Custer has gone north and then sort of down back west to try to approach the Indian encampment. And he does sight it briefly and fire into it. But then his men begin to be counterattacked. And what had happened was that Crazy Horse, who had helped lead the charge against Reno, Crazy Horse actually personally got involved in the fighting. Um, you know, he went himself and we have accounts that he was, you know, shooting and killing uh, U.S. soldiers. But while that's going on against Reno, Crazy Horse breaks off and begins to move his men north. And the other Indians don't really know what, why he's doing this. Except Chief Gall figures out that Crazy Horse has predicted that more U.S. soldiers are going to attack them from you know, the Chief north. Gall, kind of the empathetic genius known for being able to predict other people's tactics. Yes. And they had sort of seen other Union soldiers up on the ridgeline, and Crazy Horse and Gall kind of figured out that Reno's men weren't, that wasn't the whole U.S. Army in the area, that there were others out there. So Crazy Horse has kind of gone north. So Custer is pushed back from the Indian encampment, 
by, by the Indians. And his men begin to form up on several hills to the northeast of the encampment. These would be um, uh, Cemetery Hill and Calhoun Take Hill. the high ground, form a defensive line. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. Most of his men, they're up on the hills. They formed skirmish lines, so they've dismounted and have taken up, you know, a line formation. And at this moment, this is when Custer seems to realize that things really aren't going to plan, that they're not, you know, they're not going to be cutting off and capturing all the Native yeah, Americans. Yeah, two little things to note. One, this battle, I don't think we mentioned this battle is happening in like the late afternoon. This is like four or five o'clock. Also, Correct. a skirmish line. Uh, th- these are guys all lined up. Maybe there's like five of them. Uh, one's kneeling. You might have another group stand- standing with their rifles in their shoulders. Um, that's what we mean by a skirmish line. Yeah. And in fact, one in four men were assigned duty as horse handlers. So everybody would get off their horse. But one in four men would have to then go and take the reins of the horses and kind of take the horses Do not back want them running off. Yeah, exactly. They have to keep hold of them because otherwise the horses will run. So, you know, if you have, say, 100 men, that means the amount of men actually firing is 75. A quarter of your men are occupied trying to take care of the horses. So with Custer and his men up um, up on the hills, the Indians have begun, some of them remain... Uh, basically to keep Reno and Banting pinned down. But the rest of them begin an attack up to the north and basically surround Custer and begin to launch attacks on him from all sides. Now, the details of this battle are largely conjectural because as, as we'll go on, as we'll see later, Custer himself dies and all the men under his command die. So we don't know exactly what goes on. How long does it take before historians start like interviewing the natives who fought this battle? About two decades. <laughs> yeah, white historians weren't immediately out there seeing, trying to get stories of what happens from you know, the people who won, the, the Indians. Um, and in fairness, a lot of Indians probably weren't going to give up all, exactly all the details at the time, you know, because they had just won a battle. But the result is that a lot of the details are kind of a little bit um, foggy and sometimes contradictory. Because you're talking to people 20 years after the event yeah. about a battle which will take place you know, in the afternoon about the course of like two hours. So not a very long thing. But what seems to have happened is that Custer's men end up really in, uh, divided in two on the two hills, Calhoun and cemetery um and as those two hills are attacked they end up trying custer tries to retreat and is able to get some of his men back to a hill which will go down as history as custer's hill or the last stand hill because this is let's put a let's not use that term a lot and just put a pin in that we're gonna come back to that term (laughs) yes so now like I said, he Custer started off with around 210 men. At this point, maybe he still has around 100 or so left. And the Indians are attacking him more or less relentlessly. Now, are they attacking, are they advancing on foot or are they like strafing with their horses? Do we know? I'm just trying to imagine this because Custer's up on the hill. Yes. And they're forming like they're, essentially they're mostly, siege lines. 
Yeah, the, the Indians are at this point are mostly on foot. Um, They're just you'll have coming some up. Instances, yeah, you'll have some instances like the Cheyenne in particular were known for very quick hit and runs. And uh, slightly before this, you know, when they were still split on the two hills, the Cheyenne had launched a very quick, you know, attack on Horace, basically punching through the skirmish line on Cemetery Ridge and scattering the men, and then just continuing onwards. They didn't stop to fight. And then they would come back and then punch through again. Yeah, and remember, this is um, rocky terrain with a lot of high grasses and shrublands. They're up on the hill, and you've got native yeah. troops, you know, You'll, you'll shoot, you'll advance up to a ridge line or a rock or maybe even to high grass. You'll get in that, you'll wait for an ever opening, and they're, they're just moving up. Correct. And, but yes, most of the, like I said, you didn't want to stay in a prolonged period under fire on a horse. So not only has Custer dismounted, but the most of the Indians coming up the hill are coming up on foot. And actually, we have stories from then, from them, of Custer's men shooting their own horses and using the bodies of the horses as essentially cover to form barricades to hide behind. I, I have seen this often talked about as like a great folly of, oh, Custer shot his horses. That's so stupid. Why didn't he escape? But it, th there was no escape at this point. No. C Custer's stupidity was extending his line, splitting his men. He, ga he gave bad or bad orders. He's using bad tactics. But this is not a stupid decision, necessarily. No. Yeah, you're, you're giving up your mobility, but you're doing it to survive. You know, it's, there was no easy route out that Custer could have just rolled down and escaped. They're basically doing this as a last-ditch effort. And it's not a terrible thing. It's bad for the horses, but it's not a it's not a dumb decision. Now there doesn't seem to have been a single last glorious stand for Custer. If there was, we don't know about it. The Indian accounts point towards pockets of U.S. soldiers having their own individual last stands. You'd essentially have a group of soldiers forming a barricade and firing, and you know until they ended up getting overwhelmed, and this would repeat again and again, all up on the hill. And at some point in this, as all the uh, as all the soldiers are dying, Custer himself is killed. We don't know the exact details. We do know that he had a shot in the um, torso and a shot to the head. And the shot in the torso bled. The shot in the head didn't. And that probably means one of his men uh, put him out of his misery. Yes, and that is backed up by some of the Indian accounts. Uh, one of the Indians, you know, decades after the fact, did did mention that he thought Custer committed suicide, but due to the way the headshot was, uh, um, it seems most likely that Custer would have had one of his men shoot him in the head. And we don't like to talk about this, but that that is a relatively common part of this period of history of warfare oh yeah and, and in this battle the indians will mention that multiple u.s soldiers commit suicide rather than um face what they expected to be you know captured or tortured or whatever so custer's forces are more or less annihilated up on cemetery hill and benteen sees this and in a moment of yes. drama they realize that those guys are dead. Correct. And there's absolutely no way they're coming out. So the U.S. Army 
turns tail. They retreat. They take up a position. They've got around 300 men. Benteen and what's left of Reno's men just form a defensive position on a hill. Um, and by this point, night is approaching. There are some Indians who, you know, try attacking and firing into their position. That mostly stops during the night because it's very hard to conduct warfare in the night in, you know, pre-20th century. And by the morning, the Indians have mostly gone. Benteen doesn't really know why until he finds out until later on that day where the rest of Terry's column begins to arrive on the scene and relieve them. The Indians had figured out that the rest of, that the U.S. had remaining forces in the area that were coming, and they got out of there. So basically, over the course of a couple hours on the 25th, a large portion of the 7th Cavalry was, was completely wiped out, was killed. You know, almost half of it just gets destroyed in this battle. And while the numbers are relatively small compared to, you know, you think of the great battles of the Civil War, you know, Gettysburg and Antietam and Bull Run. This was a big event at the time. This was very quickly publicized as Custer's last stand, as a big military defeat. And to this day is really one of the few prominent instances and one of the most famous instances of the U.S. Army losing, very clearly losing, a land battle. Yeah, this this is... the. Um, I always heard, like, growing up of the Battle of the Bulge is, like, a very nasty moment where the U.S. was kind of trumped, but the, the, even though the Germans inflicted incredibly heavy casualties in World War II, uh, we won that battle. Yes. Uh, the Japanese uh, score several victories during the Pacific War. Obviously, the, the Civil War, let's not really count, and the Revolutionary War, there's a large, and 1812 have... A bunch of retreats, but this is one of, like, the very few instances of a giant amount of U.S. soldiers just being obliterated yeah. on the field of battle. Yeah. And it makes this defeat incredibly historically significant. It's humiliating, and the U.S. cannot be humiliated. So this is why you've probably heard of this as Custer's last stand. You know, Custer, he's turned into a glorious uh, figure, a heroic figure who did what he had to do until the final moment. Um, you know, blame gets pushed off onto Reno and Bettine. Uh, the branding goes into, because what is a nation but effective branding and a good army? Correct. The, um, and this is why I refuse to call the battle Custer's last stand. I refuse to call it. It is the battle of little bighorn because it paints Custer as the good guy, and it paints the U.S. government as the good guy, and it makes it sound like this was heroic, like this was noble, like this was worth doing, and it's not. Custer is thousands of miles away from his home, away from his wife, in land that his nation does not own, fighting for metal in rocks that someone else is going to pry out. Correct. And he overextended, and he gave bad orders, and he got and he got killed. Yes, and he gets to be a hero for and, it. And really, when you read about Custer, um, he he obviously portrayed himself as very dashing and daring, and he was personally brave. And after the fact, after the battle, his wife will continue to write about Custer for years, 
and keep up the image of, you know, if you if you lose a battle, you can at least turn that around and sort of romanticize the tragedy or the heroism of the defeat. You'll see this, you know, in the South with the Lost Cause movement. You'll see Germans after the World Wars do this. And you see it with Custer, where you know, if we lose a battle, we can at least make it into a romantic, hero- heroic defeat. Okay, so night falls. The next day, um, Benteen gets reinforced. What is, like, the immediate aftermath of this? So the immediate aftermath is that the Sioux and the other Indians are able to leave the battlefield and, you know, pack up their encampment and, and escape. As I mentioned, this was not where they had planned to make, you know, a big battle or a last stand or anything on their side. To, cer- to a certain degree, they got lucky. Yeah. They, they took their opponent, their opponent kind of walked right into their jaws and they lap, snapped them up. Yeah. Obviously, there was good tactful decision making made on the day and they were able to sort of anticipate each other and coordinate together well. But Custer walked right into yeah. it. Yeah, and really the Indian action on this day is very reactionary. They get attacked and they launch their counterattacks to deal with that. They, they didn't plan everything in advance. Custer... By not waiting for reinforcements, more or less ruined the chance the U.S. had to get a quick victory by surrounding and capturing a very significant you know, amount of Native Americans. Had they have captured even half of those 7,000, you know, if they had got the women and children, that probably would have been the end of the war there and then. And it probably would have broken Sioux power um, almost permanently. But the immediate aftermath is that the, the natives get away. The U.S. Army, you know, Benteen and Reno are leave. The army forms up. And the army then has to rethink their tactics. They, they've lost the chance of a quick and easy victory. But they, they're obviously not going to give up. They're not going to let the Sioux keep the Black Hills. So they instead change their tactics and settle in for a prolonged campaign and one against not only the Native American warriors, but against the civilians. And this is the sad and somewhat boring part of the Great Sioux War, is it's all anti-climax. The Battle of Little Bighorn is, by orders of magnitude, the largest uh, engagement in the war. And when we talk about wars, let's talk about win conditions, okay? what, what So what, what do these sides need to do to win? Well... The natives need to obliterate the Americans. They need to get them out. They need to not be attacked anymore. The Americans need to get the natives to surrender. And they're going to do that by instigating Custer's strategy of taking hostages. And this is essentially going to happen at a village level on cracking down the Indian agencies they're going to occupy these towns uh, they're going to seize horses seize weapons um the u.s government is going to pass a law uh that is noted as extinguishing all lakota rights outside of the great sioux reservation uh they're going to go on campaign and really do a brutal what would kind of it's not proper concentration camp insurgent tactics that would later really get developed in the Philippines and um, 
the the Boer War that the British would be doing just about, I think, two decades after this. But you can think of it a very similar way. You take the civilians, and eventually everyone would surrender. A big part of that is the civilians were the source of these guys' food. Remember that... The Indians, their whole way of life is coming down around them. The buffalo are starting to go extinct. The, and their entire civilization was based off of following these herds. Uh, these guys are starving. They're low on ammunition. Uh, their wives and their children, their sons and daughters are captured. And eventually they give up and they come on home. We're not going to give a full blow-by-blow of the Great Sioux War because this episode is on the Battle of Little Bighorn. But that's what happens. Eventually, Crazy Horse surrenders, and everything's wrapped up by 1877. Yes. Yeah, so Crazy Horse surrenders at the Red Cloud Agency in September of 1877. And he, because really, as, as, as you mentioned, he, he didn't want all of his men to be killed in this war. He was not stupid, and he was not suicidal. Unfortunately for him, he we don't know the full details of it, but he does end up being stabbed and killed by a U.S. guard uh, after a scuffle when they're apprehending him. Yeah, he was you know supposed to be arrested, supposed to stand trial, a whole you know legal operation, and just you know language between language barrier, hostility, bad blood of people on both sides. Uh, you know, crazy horse gets stabbed. Uh, when he's unarmed, I think some reports say his arms were tied behind his back. Yes. And uh, he's a great warrior, and that's how he went down, which is something we will see again, but we'll get to that when we get to that. Uh, how did, um like, like, like you know, Wikipedia will tell you the Great Sioux War ended in 1877. There's a lot of you know, fighting and whatnot after that, but, like, what, what what's the, is there a treaty? So at the end of the war, after all of, most of the, Native um, leaders have either surrendered or escaped, or, and some of them will go up to Canada. But essentially, they're they're done with as a fighting force. The U.S. passes uh, what is sometimes called a treaty, but it wasn't really negotiated with these native leaders because they had basically given up that when they had surrendered. This was not like Fort Laramie, where Fort Laramie was ostensibly speaking two sides sitting down. And coming to a mutual agreement. And the, Congress does not acknowledge the humanity of these people to negotiate. Yeah. And the agreement of 1877 takes away all the unceded territory. It permanently establishes Indian reservations. It takes away the Black Hills, though. The remaining reservations, which the Indians are forced to live on, is mostly not very good land. It's land which the U.S. considers a low priority because it's not, it's not that productive. And while there will be a you know, continuation of violent events between the U.S. and the Sioux and other tribes, this was essentially the end of them as a political force resisting the U.S. on the ground level, in, you know, on the large scale. The land is taken, the reservations, which are still standing today, that is still yeah. the Sioux reservations that we, we know and that you can go to. Um, this land would begin to be flooded with prospectors. It's still flooded with troops uh, because, you know, it, it's still unclear. 
To us, we now know this is more or less the end of the Great Plains War period, but you know, no one knew that it's at the time. And the Great Plains War would see a strange and tragic coda about a uh, more, little more decade later in 1889 called the Ghost Dance Movement. Uh, sometimes it's called the Ghost Dance War. Uh, don't let people call it that. It's not that. This was a more of a religious movement than a military one. Uh, I'm not going to pretend to know much or understand um, Native American religion or spirituality. It's, it's often called a spiritual movement. You know, the term religious and spiritual is kind of, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> Abrahamic religions, uh, you know, I, I'm Christian. Jay was raised Muslim. We, we, we don't really like to acknowledge the validity of religions that don't work in, in a very same way as ours do, so we often call what they believe spiritualism and attempt to kind of de-rank it. Um, I, you know, I don't know which term is most accurate, but just know that going in. Uh, the ghost dance was essentially a movement of doing what's called the ghost dance, an attempt to spiritually uh, ward off the white settlers and revive and bring back the buffalo that had disappeared and was drawn uh, near to extinction. Like, like buffalo get down to uh, less than a thousand individuals in this time. Um, the ghost dance movement was, was peaceful. You know, sometimes they get rowdy, but there, there were not battles in the ghost dance period of 89 and 90 there were not pitched conflicts uh there might have been some firebrands there might have been some speeches but you don't have great warriors uh gathering up armies like you did in uh 74 76 of course the u.s government doesn't see it like that they see brown people getting angry getting nancy moving too much and this leads them to start to arrest all of the troublemakers from the last war. And this is where they come for Sitting Bull, who died in a very similar way to um, Crazy Horse. Uh, it's almost... Uh, it's, it's almost... Um, maliciously poetic um, he was arrested on the standing rock reservation that's probably a name that you've probably heard i i say the word arrested but he, he was surrounded by troops in a house um where his wife was he comes out a crowd gathers um eventually there's some mayhem uh sitting bull is shot um Sitting Bulls, his, his friends, his family, his community is enraged. They fight. Around, I think, 15 people die, uh, most of them uh, U.S. troops. And, of course, this allows the Americans to say, oh, the natives are at it again. Yeah. So around this time, one of the guys who was getting some people together in an attempt to respond to the American violence that's going down is this guy named Chief Spotted Elk, who had been an ally of uh, Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull, but uh, didn't really take place in the battles of the Great Sioux Wars. Uh, he led the, I am going to butcher this, uh, Mini Kanju, or I am so sorry. So around December... Uh, late December of 1889, he's got a band, about three dozen warriors. This is a, a, a tiny amount of people. 
there's armies coming after them. They're like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And eventually what they're going to do is settled when he comes down with pneumonia and they're like, there's no way this is going to end well. So Spotted Elk and his team of around three dozen men, they're captured. They surrender peacefully. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. They're forced into a group of a civilian settlement of around 250 to 300 people. And this is near Wounded Knee Creek. And you've heard that term, Wounded Knee. Maybe you don't remember exactly why you've heard it, but you've probably heard it. And the 7th Cavalry Regiment, they're still here. They've got this group rounded up, and we need to disarm these dangerous savages. So they go in on December the 29th of 1890, and they start forcibly disarming them, taking guns. I say forcibly, but again, these people didn't want to fight. A lot of them was surrendered peacefully. Eventually what happens, there's a lot of reports, but um, one native didn't really want to give up his gun. Uh, some reports say he was disabled. Uh, mo- most likely you hear that he was deaf. And his gun accidentally goes off. You know, Very common. Guns go off for all sorts of reasons these days back then lesser quality you know think people were struggling around gun goes off but these guys are all antsy they all think that these natives are dangerous and they're, they're probably prejudiced and want to kill them anyway and they start fighting this was a fight uh, 31 american soldiers were killed that is factually true what is also factually true is that the army on this day massacred 250 to 300 Men, women, and children. If you ever hear someone call it the Battle of Wounded Knee, just take your hand and open palm, smack them in the face. I would also um, accept uh, a good sock to the gut with a closed fist. That is not what it was. But it was called a battle at the time. There was an exchange of gunfire between a much larger force and another force of mostly civilians that was, again, already mostly disarmed. It was considered a battle. And what do you do for battles? But you give out awards, including the, what had uh, just come into be, Medal of Honor. Now, before I get into this absolutely infuriating shit fest I, I will note that in the first three decades of the medal of honor being a thing uh they were given out like hotcakes um smedley butler got one twice uh by the way uh, look up smedley butler he's one of the most important americans you'll never learn about in school 20 medals of honor were given at wounded knee including to first sergeant frederick toy for bravery first lieutenant john gresham voluntarily leading a party into a ravine, being wounded in action. Corporal William Winson for bravery. Mosheim Feaster for extraordinary gallantry. Marvin Hillock for distinguished bravery. To this day, these medals of honor have not been rescinded. In a uh, turn of events, this is actually a somewhat relevant situation. Earlier this year, around March, the um, Republican-controlled state Congress of South Dakota actually voted unanimously to wish for these medals to be 
rescinded. Uh, this was picked up in uh, the Senate by Elizabeth Warren and Jeff Merkley and uh, in the House by Congressman um, uh, Kaylee. It's gone nowhere because it's the Senate. Um, maybe this will get brought up every decade or so and someone else will try, but yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if these medals stand for another hundred years because we don't really teach this part of history. Um, I haven't given a lot of background about myself, who I am. I uh, mentioned offhand that I uh, dropped out of college, uh, but when I was in high school, I was a very good little boy. I really liked studying. I really liked doing well in class. I really loved history because history was stories. As you can see, uh, I, I love stories. I love telling them. I took AP American History, World, European. I loved it all. I don't think my grades ever dropped below a 96 in this class, which is claimed to be a college-level class I'm taking in high school. At the end of an advanced placement uh, course year, uh, you take what's called an AP test. Uh, Jay, you probably took Indeed. plenty of these, more than these yeah. you want to remember. Um, you get a score, one through five. Uh, I got a five on AP uh American history. I got one of the highest scores uh, in my entire school. I wasn't taught about this. Uh, now, that's Georgia, one of the worst in education. Uh, Jay, you learn about this in school? I also took a push. Also, I got a five on my exam. And, you know, we we covered the Indian Wars. Uh, you know, I, I knew a various... You, you weren't about the Trail of Tears. Um, a little bit about Little Bighorn. But even I, if if my class had covered Wounded Knee, the most was probably just mentioning its name in the textbook. It was never really dealt with in any significant detail. And I have a fairly good memory of that class. And this is no one is competent. And that's where I want to end you, is the incompetence of the U.S. government in teaching about this shit. Because... History only matters in the way that it's framed, if you teach it. Things only matter if people know about them. Um, Custer's Last Stand and his glorious uh, PR tour are remembered. His wife wrote about it for years afterwards. There's whole movies made dramatizing uh, the battle. Uh, oh, the glory of it. Oh, the, the tragedy of it. This is the tragedy. You can talk about whole populations of animals being driven to near extinction. You can talk about languages being wiped off the map. You can talk about starvation, of disease, of people forced from their land, of mothers seeing their children starve in the snow. And after all of that, after they no longer wanted to fight, after they no longer had any land that was valuable enough worth taking... They still rounded them up, and they still killed them. I am not to blame for this. I'm a white guy. I don't feel white guilt. I'm not trying to make everyone feel anyone feel guilty here. That's not what this is about. This is about knowledge. This is about the truth. This is about seeing the world through clear eyes. That's part of the whole point of this podcast, is we want to kind of show the patina of rust on the world around you we want to peel back that um 
glossy, beautiful story you're told, and share the dinged-up bits, the comedic bits, the humorfully incompetent and also woefully monstrous bits. And sometimes it's going to be funny, sometimes it's going to be darkly funny, but sometimes it's just going to be depressing. This episode was hard to make. I know some of this stuff, and on a JFU encounter this, but uh, it was hard to read. I found it personally pretty disturbing, and that's fine yeah. because history is disturbing, and we gain nothing from denying what happened here. We can only lose the truth, and most people like to think that the truth is pretty valuable to them, and so that's the question I'm going to end, end with. How valuable is the truth to you? This has been the No One Is Competent podcast. Uh, with that somber note, Jay, if you'll let me, I think I'm just going to kind of transition us into the end. Uh, right. My name's Wyatt. I also go by Azalea. You can follow me on Wyatt Azalea on Twitter. I have a YouTube channel called Wyatt the Word Weaver. I make video essays. You might enjoy them. Um, Jay can be found at uh, Jaharis48 on Twitter and on YouTube. Uh, he's a Arguably a much better follow than me, because he has much more followers. And one final thing I'll say is, uh, please like and subscribe if you're on YouTube. Uh, leave us a rating if you're on iTunes. I probably should have mentioned that at the top, but, you know, we're still new to the podcast game. <laughs> um, Jay, you want to lead us out? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Doing research on that was, it was a lot, but I'm glad we did it. Luckily for, for all of us, our next episode is going to be a little more comedic, a little bit lighthearted, because we'll be talking about all those times the United States almost blew itself up with nuclear warheads. Woohoo! Until then, <laughs> until then, thank you for listening, and y'all be good.